Well, I want to say hello to everybody in this room and those of you joining us at home online. So glad that you are here today. Sometimes we'll say a funny little phrase. We'll say, what do you believe? Or we'll say, do you believe in Jesus? And I wonder if the word believe has been hijacked. We've been looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and right at the end, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says these words. He says, everyone who hears my words and obeys them is like a wise man. So Jesus does not say, everyone who hears my words and believes them is like a wise man. He says, everyone who hears my words and obeys them is like a wise man. Everyone who hears my words and does not obey them is like... A foolish man, a foolish person. Jesus does not say everyone who hears my words and believes them, although that's how we often talk. I wonder if the word believe or belief has been hijacked a little bit. For Jesus, it doesn't seem to be, uh, at least here, you know, so much about believing in the way we usually use that word. It seems that Jesus is highlighting how wise people will actually take his teaching and put it into practice, follow it, obey it, do it in their actual lives. The wise hear Jesus and obey, they follow, they do what he says. In other words, they take Jesus seriously. And we've been in this series where we've been looking at Sky Jethani's book, What If Jesus Was Serious? What would that mean? And I just wonder if the word believe has gotten us hung up a little bit. Last week, Tim mentioned, you know, this little story that Somebody asked a man, well, do you believe in Jesus? And his honest response was, I I don't know, you got to ask my spouse. Which is maybe a little closer to how we all ought to think about belief. I don't know, you, I can say I believe something, but if you want to know what I really believe, maybe ask the people who know me best. There's a man in history I've been learning about, and he read Jesus' words that we've been looking at this whole fall. He read the Sermon on the Mount, and he decided to take Jesus seriously, and it resulted in a radical discipleship. And today I kind of want to just share with you what I've been learning about his life. It was 1942, so it was the height of World War II. It was more than a decade before the civil rights movement when a young farmer and preacher named Clarence Jordan founded a place. He read the Sermon on the Mount, decided to take Jesus seriously, and he founded a a place called Koinonia Farm. It actually still exists today. And he founded Koinonia Farm as what he called a demonstration plot for the kingdom of God. He didn't just want to read Jesus' words and have them kind of stir his heart and move him in his mind. He said people needed to see the good news lived out in practical life, in actual sharing, in justice. And so he formed this farm where in 1942, in the deep south, black and white Christians lived together in harmony with each other on earth and with the land. And this month actually marks the 80th year anniversary of Koinonia Farm, this demonstration plot for the kingdom of God. 
It was a farmland. It is a farmland in the deep south. And, uh, you know, koinonia, is, it's a Greek word, and it's, it shows up like 20 times in the New Testament. It, it usually gets translated as fellowship, but it means so, so much more than people showing up and seeing each other for an hour on Sundays at church. It, it really has a lot more to do with being the church together. It has a lot more to do with shared life, shared work shared resources. And so Koinonia Farm became a demonstration plot for the kingdom in this place of shared life. So a little bit about Clarence Jordan's background. Clarence Jordan grew up in a wealthy, privileged home in Georgia. His father owned several businesses, owned, had a lot of different land holdings at that time. And like many white families in the South at the time, his family raised him in the Southern Baptist tradition. So as a young boy, he uh, would go with his father to these different land holdings, and he'd play with the kids uh, on the farm. And he started to, you know, notice over time that the kids he was playing with, the kids of the workers in the fields, were not going to school. They needed to be working on the, in the fields. They were not going to school. And uh, Clarence Jordan became a follower of Jesus. He had a profession of faith at age 12 in his church. And there was a little song that they sang. Maybe some of you even sang this song. Jesus loves the little children of the world. All the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they're precious in his sight. And Clarence started to think like, well, if this is true... Why were black children being treated so differently? And this made an impression on him. He was noticing that the kids he played with when he went with his dad to these, farm, to these different fields and land holdings and stuff, he's, you know, he noticed that if they did go to school, they had to walk super far to a one-room schoolhouse with a teacher that didn't uh, have a lot of education. And so he was noticing these things. So in the church he grew, grew up in, there was another sort of turning point for him. There were these points in his life that were uh, moments where God was moving him towards what he ended up doing with his life. And one of them was when he, um, his, his uh, church had, there was a man in the church who was very well known. His name was Mr. McDonald. Mr. McDonald also happened to be the warden of the county jail. And so Clarence and his father would actually visit this jail because Clarence's father knew someone who was imprisoned there for like a fight, a love affair, something happened. And so they would visit this jail, and he started to get to know the inmates in this jail. Most of them were black. He learned that there was actually something in this jail called the stretcher, which was like a torture instrument for prisoners. And one night, Clarence Jordan, as a kid, can remember hearing the pains of someone in, like screaming in the stretcher. And he knew that Mr. McDonald from his church was the man basically operating that machine as the warden of that jail. And he remembers thinking, we stood together in church just this week and Mr. McDonald had this rich bass singing voice, and together we sang, love so mighty, love so true, merits my soul's best song, love lifts me. And so that, that hypocrisy just tore Clarence in two. It was like this, to him, this appalling breach between what his religion professed or said they believed and what he witnessed, and that just would churn in him throughout his life. Then he had another turning point. At the age of 21, he joined the ROTC. 
And so he is, has his officer is saying, everybody on horseback, I need you to impale these uh, straw dummies. I need you to shoot at these, you know, fake figures, uh, these cutout figures from horseback. And again, Clarence had just read the Sermon on the Mount that very morning. And he suddenly remembered Jesus' words to love your enemies. And in that moment, he decided that what Jesus was teaching and what the U.S. Army taught were opposing values. This is what he concluded in that moment. So he gets off his horse, dismounts, hands in his gun, and from that moment forward really began a very radical journey of discipleship. So I attended this uh, online course about his life, and I appreciated that even folks who did not agree with all of what he was about, for example, even theologians who do not share his pacifist views, were still challenged by his life and his teachings and his writings. And so in the foreword to a recent book that was just released this month about his life, Russell Moore, this is an example from Christianity Today, said this, I can critique some of the things Clarence Jordan believed about the Bible, but I cannot critique the way he lived. When I read that, I thought, new life goals, right, for all seminarians. I can critique some of the things Clarence Jordan believed about the Bible, but I cannot critique the way that he lived. He had not let his belief in Jesus become separate from his actual life. And that was what he was seeing so very often in the lives of Christians. So after the ROTC, Clarence Jordan, he actually enrolls in seminary. And in this season of his life, he begins to realize that the American church is under the influence of what he says is a secular narrative about race, nation, and wealth. So in 1942, at the age of 30, he moves on to a 440-acre farm, names it Koinonia, and the farm is to be a demonstration plot for the kingdom of God. Now, I know that sounds really, you know, it sounds moving, it sounds inspiring, it sounds spiritual perhaps, but for the people who lived at Koinonia, it scared them to death. It scared them to death to go against Southern traditions at that time. In fact, this farm was so radical in the 40s, and its views so radical, he was excommunicated from his church. He came under investigation with the FBI. The KKK visited the farm. There was drive-by shootings many times. His church actually voted to remove him, to excommunicate him and other members of Koinonia from the church. Very interesting story comes out of that little section where an elderly deacon who had been a part of the, you know, he was there for the vote where he got booted from the church. One week later, this elderly deacon comes to Koinonia Farm. And he says, Clarence, I have come, I want to ask your forgiveness. And Clarence says, well, you have it. And this deacon says, well, can we pray together? So they get down in the red dirt and they pray together. And when they're standing up from prayer, this old man says to Clarence, I cannot be a part of a church that won't have you in it. And Clarence says to him, you don't get out of the church. You live so that they kick you out. It's 
kind of an interesting, right, radical, causing some good trouble kind of guy. Um, in the 1950s, this farm was just under increasingly um, violent situations, the people who lived on the farm. Uh, Koinonia was accused of spreading false propaganda and doing, you know, uh, because he was a pacifist, being opposed to the war. Um, so it was, uh, part of his uh, time that, in life was he wrote something called the Cotton Patch Gospel, which was basically a translation of the Bible. And he also started building a uh, home, it was a home building program that people look at as kind of the precursor to Habitat for Humanity, so very fascinating. But this was a man who broke the laws of segregation to keep the laws of love. It was a, he was a man who uh, Dr. King actually visited Koinonia Farm, interestingly enough, and uh, Martin Luther King Jr. actually said when he visited, I had to get out of there for fear for my life. Uh, Learning about his life recently, learning about his community challenges me because we are a community too. And yes, we're trying to be family. Yes, we're trying to be a community. But when you read him, you, you, you kind of go like, community, family, for what purpose? Clarence Jordan would say, a, face, a faith that costs us nothing isn't worth much. Which begs those questions for you and I, like, what sort of deals have I made with the status quo? What sort of deals have I made to remain comfortable, to belong, to to avoid the cost, to avoid the cross? And are we willing to take Jesus seriously and follow him in all things? Like, where is your demonstration plot for the kingdom? Because a demonstration plot means to be seen. And when I listen to the stories from his life, it stands out to me that he didn't, like, wait for the world around him to change Instead, he changed the world around him. He didn't wait for the laws to change. He followed the laws of Christ. He lived by another set of values, another set of rules in the world, but not of the world. And it speaks to me because I think when you look throughout history, there's always periods of darkness, and there's always examples of light. And this is one of them. Every institution right now, in many ways, you know, it's kind of, seems like there's a lot of fragmenting going on, a lot of crisis in one way or another. Families dividing, churches dividing, the nation being divided. These are also tumultuous times. It's like God is shaking up what has been known, bringing us into something new. And in church history, that's always the case where there's tumultuous times and there's always right alongside it, if you have eyes to see, these examples, these stories of light in every generation, plots for the kingdom. So where, where is ours? Where is yours? Last week, Tim was talking about clogs and he brought in that clog where the root of the tree had grown around the pipe in our backyard and the sprinkler system wasn't working because the tree had crunched the pipe. It was a clog. The water couldn't flow, couldn't get through. And he was asking, like, what are the clogs? And I was thinking this week, like, what are the clogs? For me, just of taking Jesus seriously, of 
of being in the flow of God's Holy Spirit, of being in the flow of the kingdom of heaven here and now? What, what are the clogs for me? And perhaps one of the biggest clogs or culprits to my not taking Jesus seriously, if I'm honest, is like, I was just thinking like American prag- pragmatism. Like my always asking, well, is it going to work? Is it going to work? And Jesus never said like, follow me when it works. He just said, follow me. And if I only take Jesus seriously when it seems practical to me, then no matter what I say I believe, I'm living like a practical atheist. So for me, I was thinking like one of the, one of the big clogs is just this like thing of like, well, does it work? Is it going to work? Clarence Jordan, it's very interesting. He actually did not march with MLK. Although they knew each other, they were friends, um, they were both fighting the evil social structures of race, but they were fighting, fighting that evil in different ways. Uh, Clarence Jordan, this is so interesting, he said this, he said, Jesus did not teach nonviolence. Now, this is interesting, right? He's a pacifist. He says, Jesus did not teach nonviolence. He said, he went further than that. He did not say that you could be nonviolent toward your enemy and win your enemy over. He's saying of Jesus, he's saying, Jesus would not agree with my dear friend Martin Luther King Jr. that nonviolence is a strategy by which you can accomplish your goals. It may work. It may not work. Jesus would not even attempt to use it as a strategy. He taught something greater than that. He taught that people could be children of a God of peace and of love. He taught them to think that in the midst of evil, they could face others with a love that would be unquenchable, not practical, but unquenchable. Now, this may or may not accomplish its objective, but it would make men and women out of us We would be, he said, children of God. Children of God are not always successful. Some of them wind up on crosses like the first Christian did. Who could say that was successful? Oh, you guys, I read that. That was just like so convicting to me because what sort of deals have we made with just pragmatism? Like, will it work? How many times have we said, heard Jesus say, you know, these words, these challenging words, right? Love my enemy. Turn the other cheek. Sell all you have. All these. And we say, nice Jesus. Well, that won't work. And that's true. Like, it might not accomplish my objective. But that is like the very juncture within my own heart where I go like, am I going to take Jesus seriously? Am I just going to like believe as in like cognitive assent? Or am I going to obey and do and follow? I wonder if we need like just like a corporate confession that goes something like this. Like, Lord, we have come here to confess one of the main reasons we do not take you seriously, is that we keep choosing our pragmatism, 
over your teaching. We keep thinking that we know better than you. We keep justifying our actions rather than risking following your radical teaching. We have chosen our values of wealth and comfort and security and recognition and the empire of America over the teaching of your son and the way of the cross. Like, Father, forgive us. Give us the courage to live out the Sermon on the Mount, to actually be demonstration plots for your kingdom right here, right now, and maybe we lose. But we're not in it to win it. Following you is more important to us than success. I realize most of you are not going to, like, go quit your job and buy a plot of farmland and start a farm. I don't think that's even the point of learning from his life because I think a demonstration plot for the kingdom might be whatever you are up to right now, like the small business that you are leading might be that plot, the team you are building, the family you are raising. Because at the heart of it, a demonstration plot for the kingdom of heaven is simply any place where a person says, come what may, whether it works or doesn't work, my highest allegiance is to following the way of Jesus, to following this radical way of love. My friend Jody is, she's the mom to six kids. She has four bio, two adopted from Sierra Leone. And she has such a way of like seeing the kingdom of heaven about her right in the midst of like her wild, messy family. And she recently told this story. And, and I want to share it with you as we close because I think it's another example. Another example of the way in which love is not always practical. It is not, following Jesus is not always pragmatic. It doesn't always like work in the sense of work in accomplishing my objectives, the objectives I set on it. But that doesn't mean that it isn't the way of Jesus and the way of the kingdom. So listen to Jody's story. She said this. She said, a few weeks ago, I sat with my adult son and his fiance. So her oldest is, you know, an adult now. So I sat with my adult son and his fiance, and we were laughing. She said, also insert me being slightly horrified uh, by the tales of high school shenanigans. And I asked at one point, was there anything we could have done differently that would have made you make different choices in high school? And they both shook their heads, no, no, sorry, you couldn't have, Mom. (laughs) She said, I've been thinking about it. All the boundaries, all the consequences, all the lectures and the pleading, like none of that worked. Then she said, but today it sort of hit me. Maybe it did work, in quotes, (laughs) because maybe we don't set boundaries pass out consequences, and plead in brilliant lectures to control their behavior. Behavior management is not the ultimate goal. Maybe we do those things to communicate love. We do those things because we love you, my God, we love you. And maybe it's that message that leads them home. It's that message that love 
that preserves our relationship and lingers in their hearts and minds until they can find their way. So she says, as I rally for a couple more years of this teenage parenting, the boundaries and consequences and lectures will continue. However, success will not be measured by behavior control. But rather, will they walk away from here knowing, we love you. We care where you are. You are infinitely valued in this house. We want good things for you. We want safety for you. We are so darn crazy about you. I really hope so. And then she said, this picture showed up in the time hop back when behavior control could be obtained by gathering their little hands in mine and quite literally directing their path. Those were magnificent days. But we know a different ache comes when we can't do that anymore. Their path is theirs to choose. We can pack their bag with tools, offer a map, some very helpful tips and tricks, but ultimately they make the choices. She says, my now empty hands Reach often for something to control. Give me something I can do. But it's less hands at, these, hands at work these days and more of, we love you. We're here for you. You will find your way, and the light will always, always be on. That, my friends, is also a demonstration plot for the kingdom because demonstration plots for the kingdom come in many forms. But they are places where we choose to follow Jesus in irrational love. Like where grace abounds when it doesn't make sense. Where generosity reigns even when the numbers don't work. Where hospitality and welcoming the stranger sometimes feels scary. Where forgiveness is given, where enemies are forgiven, where it may not even appear to be working. It's those places guided by the values of the kingdom of heaven, like no matter the outcome. It's where we put our trust like in that slow work of God, where we recognize this is a matter of trust because I may not see it all with my own eyes. I may not have eyes to see or I may not see this side of eternity. So may you take Jesus seriously May you, if you have to choose, like throw pragmatism to the wind in a full-out pursuit of taking Jesus seriously, of being a demonstration plot for the kingdom. Let's pray together as we close. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this time of ruminating in your word. I thank you for these examples throughout history of people who have ventured away from security and recognition and comfort and control to take you seriously. Thank you for their example and for the way in which they inspire us. God, would you give us the courage to follow you with abandon? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. One God and mother of us all. Amen.